early afternoon. No one would be home. I had already taken care of my boss and texted in sick. I set the box on the kitchen counter next to my purse, tossed my coat on the living room couch, came back to the counter, hesitated, then opened the box and removed the hummingbird. I regarded it from a precarious kitchen island stool on the edge of that expanse of wood and marble, spotless stainless steel, double sinks, a cutting station on wheels, a sparkling black and white stove, a smart refrigerator I deliberately fucked up so it wouldn't report back. Somehow the hummingbird dominated that space beyond its size, beyond even what I could have thought it meant at the time. The hummingbird had a fierce aspect, jet black feathers smoothed out and yet bristling. Even the beak, long and slender, made me think of a blade or a needle meant to draw blood. I imagined a dozen of its kind circling someone's head like guardians or a crown of thorns. Hard to imagine the species sipping delicate from a flower, but I didn't know much about hummingbirds. Our neighborhood didn't have them, nor any school I attended, and they'd been rare on the farm. We didn't plant a lot of flowers. The thick wire attached to the dead bird had the look of dull silver. The stand had a glossy look, almost a deep red. On the bottom I found the letters RS, plain, crudely carved, by the maker or by Silvina. Taxidermy registered strange to me. The language of taxidermy made no sense. I didn't like bars or restaurants where they signaled macho through deer or bear trophies on the wall macabre, pathological. But this, this came from a different impulse, secretive and elusive. The bird's body caused a disconnect, the stillness, and then the way the eyes weren't blank but staring at me. The distance across the counter widened, and the silence grew unbearable. Who was Sylvina, and why had she given me a hummingbird? And where was the salamander? Because the salamander felt personal. As if this woman I didn't know had done her research and understood the salamander didn't need to be there in the storage unit. That just the word could awaken a recognition or impulse. Some things remain mysterious, even if you think about them all the time. Salamanders hiding under logs and river stones. A creature that did not want to be found. like there was something off about the place I was born, the island where I grew up. It seemed completely unstuck in time and space, a kind of temporal whirlpool with hidden processes operating just above or below the limits of human perception. You could wander down what seemed like a clear path through the primeval forest only to turn around and see the way that you came now blocked by a wall of green vegetation. And today, 
finally have a chance to get some clarity, to get some answers. Jeff, in your estimation, exactly how much of Vancouver Island, British Columbia exists within Area X? All of it? No. <laughs> um, definitely the part uh, where, uh, is it Botanical Bay? Uh, I was yeah. muff that. Yeah, uh, definitely that part uh, is in there. And I'll, I'll tell you why, because uh, my wife and I, when we were uh, there, uh, I don't know how many years ago it was, but uh, we decided a good time to visit would be in the middle of winter during a thunderstorm. Uh, not knowing that the roads were completely potted and like washed out and there's all this like elevation. Uh, so it was the most horrifying drive that I've ever experienced because uh, then fog rolled in at the same yeah. time. Uh, so by the time we got there, my, my nerves were completely shot and I, I certainly felt like I was in another world. And then the, the mist and fog uh, went away and we were on these amazing rocks with these tidal pools and it really felt like we had crossed a border <laughs> into another place to get there. Yeah, there's something uh, there's something very phantasmagorical about uh, about that part of uh, about that part of the island in particular. And um, in case you haven't guessed, Riley and I are talking with Jeff Vanderbeer, author of Dead Astronauts, Born, the Southern Reach trilogy, the Ambergris trilogy, some excellent anthologies uh, you've curated with your wife Anne, and a new book, Hummingbird Salamander. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. It's kind of chaotic here. And uh, obviously, after a year of uh, pandemic shutdown and not seeing a lot of human beings, I'm more used to talking to raccoons and other animals <laughs> in the yard. But, you know, it's going OK. How about you all? I mean, I'm doing OK. I'm uh, I have been stuck in Montreal in the same city for a year, um, which because I'm a touring musician, this is the first time in maybe 10 or 12 years I, I haven't been able to uh, leave like an urban environment and go to another one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. It's, um, it, it's, it's weird. I mean, you know, I usually do my book tours in such a way where there's enough space between that I can go hiking and whatnot, which is, is not a spurious thing. It's kind of a, a way that I get inspiration for the next book. So it's been, it's been a little weird, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um. You know, just out of purely selfish reasons, I want to, I want to, I want to talk a little bit more about Vancouver Island before, uh, before moving down the line. But you know, growing up there in a remote community, just surrounded by forest, you get the sense of uh, what I would call cosmic horror, but not in a specifically cosmic sense. More that there are these like mindless processes and systems working on levels that are completely complex and alien. Um, I think a good example is like the constant battle against moss, like completely destroying the roof of your house or, fer you know, or ferns colonizing your whole backyard. And there's a sense of total insignificance. And depending on your position or your mood, it can seem either totally malevolent or humbling. But I, but I think there, that there's a third position that you articulate really well in your writing, which is between nature as a positive and nurturing force or a terrifying and hostile uh hostile force um and i'm wondering like i'm i'm wondering if being on that island sort of insp not inspired but fueled any of that i i think i think definitely but also because there are similarities oddly enough between there and florida you mentioned basically the encroaching vegetation and and here you can have the same thing with ferns and whatnot uh and you can have part of your house basically fall apart because mushrooms have colonized it. 
um, and, and, and so people, you know, North Florida has that kind of same kind of uh, British Columbia feel in terms of the richness of the textures and the greenery and everything. Uh, so there's definitely that. I say it's also in the eye of the beholder. Like when I wrote Annihilation, I didn't know that just the plain old nature scenes would be horrifying for some people. Um, just the stuff that wasn't yeah. even uncanny. Uh, yeah, they were definitely horrifying for me. Like the, all of the descriptions of moss in that book was, <laughs> was uh, extremely triggering because I remember, you know, my dad sending me up on the roof with a spatula to scrape uh, moss off tiles, you know. Yeah, no, I, uh, uh, but see, I never really had that experience. I had more of the experience of just kind of becoming integrated with it. Uh, but what I would say about Vancouver Island is the other thing I remember is on another trip, and it's just amazing to me when I think about how influential being there has been. Uh, it was hugely influential on on authority and acceptance because the second two books in the Southern Reach, because we also uh, went out kind of the same way towards Botanical Bay, uh, but closer into uh, Victoria, there's a uh, an old decommissioned like army or naval base on the coast near a lighthouse. Yeah, that's right. And that place is actually featured in Acceptance. There's actually scenes Lowry, the the kind of uh, kind of deranged guy who's come back from Mary X, uh, is high up in Central's hierarchy. The place he hangs out is basically that that space. And there was something about the abandoned building aspect combined with the fact that nature had kind of encroached is what you're talking about that kind of drew me to, to use that as a setting. One of the things I think is really interesting about this, right? And I promised when, when we started doing um, uh, the Bottleman sort of a couple of months ago that I wasn't always going to come in with, uh, ah, well, you see in Britain, uh, mm -hmm. given that I've lived here for the last 10 years and I'm yeah. simply a Canadian abroad. Um, but I, one of the things I think about when I think of nature encroaching is the extent to which sort of just the um, the British over the course of the last thousand years have essentially denuded this island sort of of much of its capacity for wilderness to encroach. And when people experience wilderness encroaching now, it's actually primarily through neglect where um, there are entire sort of blocks of houses that used to be blocks of, of flats that used to be maintained by, the, by their local councils, for example, in places like Barnet, that because of policies that sort of came in under Thatcher and intensified under Blair, nature has been allowed to come back in another way through things like mold, uh, vermin and stuff like this. But these are essentially these are these 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 creations, these sort of skyscrapers that came up in the sort of 60s and 70s are almost unnatural creations and that it takes effort to maintain those against the encroachment of nature and that we've decided to just sort of, you know, um, abandon great swaths of the people actually living in London to um, have their places overtaken by a sort of, again, you know, almost a form of a mushroom, right? Of allowing yeah. sort of fungi to sort of like, um, just sort of proliferate within these buildings. And so, I, th I mean, I, I moved to Britain 10 years ago thinking that this place was wonderful, loving all the beautiful walls and the fence posts and the accents and all that shit. And then, you know, as I've sort of lived here longer, I sort of have understood it as a place that is utterly sort of nuked from orbit, its own um, capacity to... It's its own sort of balanced natural environment, whether by overgrazing or whatever. 
and has replaced that with one that is almost sort of entirely you know malevolent and um almost sort of sickening to humans uh with this with this sort of um like almost i don't know i mean i i'd be interested to know sort of how you rate my um uh, moral judgment i guess you could say on, well, on mean, the mold in the barnet tower blocks well i i guess the it also is where you are because there's parts of wales and cornwall and scotland that are that are quite wild uh even if it's not necessarily the wilderness that they had you know like 200 years ago but you know also it, it's often what we see as encroaching is the stuff that was there before that got kicked out uh so it's it's hard for me to 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 like comment on on like uh abandoned blasted out buildings specifically, but but I would say that it is true that the British government over the last 10, 15 years has waged an all-out assault on wildlife. So whatever you're seeing has been uh, also exacerbated by the fact you have these ridiculous badger culls that do nothing for livestock, uh, and, and you have widespread pollution of your waterways, uh, waterways over there uh, systematically uh, in a way that I can't even comprehend. Uh, so basically, the British government is doing everything it can to basically make sure its citizens get cancer and, and all kinds of things. So it's, it's all linked yeah. together, the nature and, and, and what's happening to people. And, and if, you're, if you're not wealthy and you live in one of these tower blocks, that's yeah. essentially, that's not abandoned. That certainly still yeah. has people living in it, yeah. but that the councils have decided they don't want to maintain. Right. And almost a new form of nature that wasn't there before in the form of like extensive, massive colonies of black mold. It just can't find mm. in nature. There isn't something like a block of flats that that much black mold can concentrate in in that tiny point, right? Yeah, no. I mean, I think that that what happens is everything gets out of balance. I mean, you see it here too in terms of uh, mosquito spraying, which is absolutely one of the, the stupidest things you can do to get rid of mosquitoes because mines winds up making the mosquitoes resistant while wiping out all this other stuff that eats mosquitoes. So then you wonder why there are more mosquitoes, so you spray more. <laughs> and then you have certain cancer rates go up and stuff and people and you don't understand the connection between those things. So, you know, it, it's just the absurdism of it is something that I, I try to convey in the fiction sometimes because it, mm. it, it's it's not funny, but it, it but it is deeply absurd. You know, it's it's contradictory and irrational the way we behave a lot of the time. Yeah, it's the yeah. it's the oh, that we we are a species of an old lady who has swallowed a fly. <laughs> Yeah, I think you know. I, I just talking about this, it kind of, kind of brings up like one of the things I I love about your writing, which is this kind of shifting uh, temporal nature of the protagonist. That the landscape itself is foregrounded as a character, and uh, oftentimes human or animal or alien characters physically fuse with the landscape in sometimes extremely disturbing ways. Um, and I, and I I like that because I I think it um I think it illustrates the artificiality of of these boundaries that we're talking about you know between place and and humanity. Yeah, I mean it's one of the things that that is one of our problems is that because we can't see uh, or whatever you want to call it with our five senses a lot of what's going on that's kind of destabilizing the world we we don't tend to like believe it in our gut. You know, and we don't make those connections. And I think that's really important. So, you know, not to, you know, the, the latest novel has salamanders in it because they feel through their skin. You know, they, 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 they breathe through their skin. So they're much more susceptible to pollutants. And I think that's a good metaphor, too, to make something visible that is happening to us as well. Like if you were to do an autopsy 
on a human body from 200 years ago and one from now, you know, given the amount of microplastics and forever chemicals in our bodies, uh, you'd be absolutely flabbergasted. So, you know, there's this thing where we've taken on board so much that's invisible internally, not to mention what's in the landscape and, and not really kind of realized it, even though I think cancer rates in some areas are up to 40%, you know, which is not, not natural in the human body. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, that's, I, I've been reading this book, uh, by Kate Brown called, and maybe you've read it, Jeff, but, uh, manual for survival, a Chernobyl guide to the future. I don't think I've read and that one, but I'm familiar with the title. Yeah. It's, it's pretty incredible. And it, and, and it really illustrates at least to me, like the, the fact that the border between nature and the environment and human bodies isn't just thin, it's non-existent, non-existent you know? Yeah. And there's this, there's this passage that I pulled up last night, um, that reminded me a lot of, of some of your writing, uh, except it's not fiction. <laughs> so, <laughs> but, um, but she's talking about the red forest, which is uh, a forest within the zone of alienation, um, in, in Chernobyl and Priapit. So she's, and she's talking about scientists who are, um, studying the growth of trees there. And it goes, she says in the red forest, most of the new growth was in the form of birch trees, which grow better than pines because they secrete radioactivity annually when they shed leaves. The pines that did root were more like shrubs than the straight tall trees normally grown for board lumber. The floor of the red forest had little vegetation. The forest did not smell like a forest and it did not smell like decomposition. Uh, decomposition from life to death is the foundational rule of forest science and it has been violated here. Uh, physicists have been saying for hundreds of years that time measure, time measured in unwavering increments like seconds and years is a human construct that it expands and contracts in unpredictable ways. If Rip Van Winkle had fallen asleep in the red forest and woken 20 years later, he would not have been able to tell how much time has passed. I should have been happy to find a place where time nearly stopped, but instead it felt, it filled me with a great dread. And that to me was very Vanderbeer ish. (laughs) Well, I mean, one thing, if you're a novelist and you're trying to grapple with these things, you have to grapple with the here and now, and you have to grapple with the idea that places are contaminated. Uh, yeah, that was my question, like, basically. Like, yeah. if you feel like you're describing the, the, the worlds that you're describing in your fiction have already arrived. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, and then maybe that's why, you know, the latest novel and the novel after that are more set in contemporary times, because it feels like the science fictional future is is upon us. and And these are the times to write about if you're you're writing speculative fiction in a sense. Uh, but I also what I also find that I find disturbing is sometimes when people describe these unnatural places or places that are even more unnatural than the norm because most everything has been been changed by us. Uh, we we tend to want to write them off, right? So the Chernobyl area is also incredibly wealthy in wildlife and other things. So even though unnatural things are happening, animals are adapting to that, and so. The thing we need to do is we need to keep holding on to even places with black mold, even places, even maybe maybe those places we really need to intensify our, our attention on, the places that are being forgotten because we think of them as as, as not worthy or already so contaminated that they can't be saved. Um, but you know everything's going to be like that eventually if we're not if we don't you know do something about it now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I. You know, thinking about like the inevitability of all of this, uh, I was, 
I was th- and and getting ready for this interview, I was uh, I was reminded that I I read uh, Dead Astronauts while I was touring this concept album called Radiant Dawn that my partner and I wrote. Um, and while while we were putting the record together, I was obsessed with this book by Timothy Morton called Hyper Objects, um, of which climate change is definitely one. Um, and some of those ideas really helped us solidify. The statement that we wanted to make with the record, which was um, sort of advanced and nebulous for for a rock band, I think. Um, so when I was reading Dead Astronauts, I was really struck by how the how the book was working on some of the same angles and themes we were trying to get across. The concept of hyper objects being one of the three lines, and I wanted to know if you could talk a little bit about that concept and how you've worked that into your writing. Yeah, I mean, I love the idea uh, of, of- that Tim describes in his book of hyperobjects in terms of climate crisis, because the the attributes of a hyperobject are that it's unevenly distributed, that it's so vast that the human mind has difficulty actually grasping it, uh, and then that as a result, our reactions to it are illogical because we're not able to grasp it. Therefore, we're not able to actually use facts in a in a meaningful, rational way. I mean, those are some of the things he talks about, and it's not it's it's certainly no coincidence that uh, that those concepts made it into dead astronauts in my other books, not not just because when Annihilation came out, they kept mentioning that I should read Tim Morton's book if I hadn't. But then after mm-hmm. that, I got invited to Rice, where he teaches or taught. Uh, and uh, some of the conversations that I had with him and other people in their environmental science and, and philosophy areas uh, were very meaningful in terms of entering my subconscious probably and coming out in the novel. So there's a lot in like dead astronauts that's probably directly filtered through my subconscious, but came from conversations with Tom, Tim Morton and, and at Rice. So it, it's kind of interesting how that kind of influence works. Yeah, I was, I was really interested in the uh, conversation you had with him uh, about slow tech. Because oh. <laughs> Riley, Riley and I have, uh, unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately uh, recorded, what, three, about three hours of uh, podcasting about NFTs? We have talked, oh, yeah. such, we have talked <laughs> with such great length. About which I mean, which I feel like is the opposite of slow tech, right? <laughs> like, if yeah. slow tech is mushrooms breaking down plastics and right, uh, right. preventing soil erosion, then you know the opposite of that is a fucking NFT of Yen Cat. Um, <laughs> what are what are the stats on the energy usage, Riley? Oh, uh, the Yen Cat NFT used as much energy as two European households use in a month. Uh, just horrifying, um, isn't it? It's like yeah. Uh, um, and I mean, look, it's when I when I sort of think about if you want to sort of take that sort of hyper object principle and apply it to uh, to the NFT, mm-hmm. like the reason mm-hmm. that NFTs haven't sort of created, I think. And look, we talk about NFTs sort of quite a bit because like they're just something that I think is just very much lives in the forefront of mine and Dan's minds. Mm-hmm. Um, not unfortunately, uh, our minds are not actually able to do the calculations that maintain the NFTs, so we haven't made any money off them as nodes. Um, but um, but it's something that sort of occupies the front of our minds at all times because it is this perfect encapsulation, I think, of a kind of, a kind of um, social reaction to what you might, if you think of sort of this, this thing like climate change or, or as a hyper object or crypt, cryptocurrency and related yeah. at all uh, energy uses as a kind of subset, a kind of subcategory of that hyper object, right? The NFT is almost a sort of perfect example of 
our reaction in a deeply irrational way to climate crisis oh, as yeah. much as we're saying, well, it doesn't really matter what I, uh, if I make anything. And, and in fact, I'm happy to make everything uh, indeed much worse. Um, what I can do is I can increase my power over uh, to command the uh, labor of my fellow man uh, through this uh, fake money, essentially. And that's all channeled through um, you know, um, essentially sort of winky self-referential memes because, you know, the, the, the people who are sort of the wealthiest in control of most of the economy are actually, you know, um, sysadmin guys, like, like snarky sysadmins. Yeah, they have ch- really right, child's brains. Yeah, and it's, it's all guys who would post on fucking bash.org or whatever. And so, but so what we have is, we, again, it's almost like it's this parody of commerce and the people who are sort of trying to make tons of money off of them, again, it's almost like a parody of rationality. It's a parody of understanding sort of your circumstances and responding to them in a way that makes sense based on some, you know, um, uh, Weltgeist or whatever you want to call it. You know, it is, yeah. it is, in fact, it is essentially selling the wood from the lifeboat that you're in on the <laughs> bet that you'll be able to buy a yacht with that money. Well, I mean, it, it's it's. Uh, I mean, again, on the absurdity level and the horror, 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 horrible absurdity is is the idea of Musk coming in on this, Elon Musk coming in on this, and and basically negating any good he had done with his battery to some degree, possibly by getting behind Bitcoin so so seriously, mm-hmm. uh, and then also the 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 weird thing of like how the internet, this electronic, this kind of you know thing that lives in the cloud becoming physical in how like for example they're gonna they're having to try to stop a guy who wants to bitcoin mine by start restarting a natural gas uh facility on a on one of the the finger lakes in upstate new york so it's like you have this completely ephemeral kind of like thing that lives in the cloud that's now going to actually prey on physical locations uh Mm. it just it's it's so bizarre and then like you said about like the people and some of the people involved it it makes them they, the way they tweet about it it's like they think talking about mfts makes them sound smart and cutting edge right like like it could be anything like you could put something in in front of them that was complete parody and didn't actually exist but if they thought it would make them sound like they were the experts on something that they would immediately retweet it right um and so that that aspect is fascinating to me too because Literally, you could have something that has less agency or less reality than M- NFTs, and and less basis for long-term, you know, sustainability occur, just because some celebrity tweets about it or somebody comes on board with it, <laughs> and nobody really looks at the underpinnings of it. Like we could, we twenty years from now, you know, while we're, you know, on our last legs on everything else, we could <laughs> we could be merely on the internet doing something that makes NFTs look like. Like solid yeah. science, you know. <laughs> Welcome like... to new super Bitcoin. It requires a Dyson <laughs> sphere to run. Um, well, that may you could all sort of I, th- I to be honest think you could kind of apply the same logic to um, to how SpaceX has turned out. Hmm. Where mm-hmm. um, like sort of one of the things I'm seeing more and more of recently is that Elon Musk has kind of decided, well, my rockets are mainly going to explode, and yeah. so <laughs> again. Because, because and it, it comes back down to ecology. The whole point of SpaceX is humanity must not be must be multiplanetary, so we can be anti-fragile. Um, and so he's saying, well, we have to go build a moon base or a base on Mars or whatever, 
And anytime you look into the specifics of it, it's always, um, he talks about, oh, yeah, of course, well, there'll be glass domes. And it's like, well, you can't have a glass dome on Mars because that would cause uh, air leakage. Like, that wouldn't work. So everyone would have to live, what, underground? How do you procreate? Blah, blah, blah. Not sort of debating the merits of sort of Martian colonization, but his, he essentially seems to have not thought it through. But he's able to continue sort of littering um, sort of North Florida and South Texas with rocket yeah. debris because yeah. he's like, well, it doesn't matter that sort of what I'm doing is completely impossible. There is this incomprehensible fact of ecology that is sort of that where the problem seems bigger than any of us. So I'm going to do something that doesn't work and I'm going to look like I'm making progress by blowing up a lot of rockets. Well, yeah. And, and I mean, I have I have been stupid enough to wade into the the Musk bro world on Twitter where, you know, I'll, I'll point out that bad idea that, that Musk now wants to mine natural gas at the same site that he's doing the rocket launches, which will totally destroy the environment in this kind of sensitive place, which is just the ultimate irony for somebody who supposedly is creating a battery that's going to make us more sustainable. But, but anyway, you know, you, you it, something about the story he's telling is actually is, 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 is appealing to this kind of fundamental horrifying like almost manifest destiny thing that still lives at the core of some of us you know what i'm saying it's like this whole you know frontier spirit crap bullshit that we know is completely mm. problematic um and i think that's how he gets away with it is the kind of myth he's trying to create whether it's intentional or just how he thinks uh unfortunately appeals to a lot of people who don't don't want the the complex you know, the complexity of it, the fact that, you know, if we had just supported someone other than Musk, we might have the battery without all the baggage, you know what I'm saying? (laughs) Well, it's, I think it goes down to what kind of science fiction you're trying, because so much like, you know, technological innovation basically comes down to people reading science fiction and trying to make it real or the Department Mm -hmm. of Defense. Um, (laughs) Either one. I highly recommend, I highly recommend not not trying to create reality out of science fiction, but that's just me. <laughs> Maybe I've read too much science fiction. I don't know. <laughs> Jeff, Jeff, what are you saying? What are you saying? You're saying we should we you you say we shouldn't try and uh, create uh, the drowned world by JG Ballard. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think that what's hilarious to me is that I find like 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 someone can be a hard sci-fi writer and have like a engineer background, and yet. When you actually look at the hard sci-fi novel they wrote, it's actually kind of batshit if you try to apply it to the real world, right? So, so I actually am of the belief that that our policy decisions should not be based on science fiction novels. But yeah, I, oh no, no I'm, I'm actually going to make Dan into a vampire. I'm going to make Dan into a vampire. <laughs> I'm, so I'm going to be able to communicate with the uh, alien intelligence artifact. Um, that's, that's, that's interesting you should mention um, policy decisions because this is a bit of a tangent. But um, one thing I'm kind of obsessed with, I'm a huge science fiction fan. And one thing I've become obsessed with is the fact that the U.S. government hired Jerry Pornell and Larry Niven at one point. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> do you know about this, Riley? Uh, I, do. I, you- I mean, I know about... Um, I know about Niven's influence on uh, Jeff Bezos in particular and his influence on his space program, but I didn't know that they were um, involved in, with the U.S. government. I, it doesn't surprise me at all. They were in a lot yeah. of different panels. And, and, and when you find out what like their views on the border are, for example, you'd be absolutely horrified if you don't know already. So, it's repellent. So they bring a lot of other baggage along with 
the possible like engineering ideas. You know? so, um. Yeah. Like, do we, do we really want to go back to like the Reagan era, 1984? <laughs> yeah. You know, we building a giant uh, array yeah. of space lasers yeah. and, They've spelled out the 14 words in Lagrange points. <laughs> <laughs> I still remember that I was asked to attend and speak at like, like, like make a whole like hour long presentation for a science fiction event that was like a pop culture one. And I said, well, what's the honorarium? And they said, well, there's no payment, but you'll get to have lunch with Elon Musk. <laughs> and I was like, seriously, you trying to dissuade me from doing this gig? Because that seems like a, a huge amount of punishment to take while also a lot of work involved. But, you know, so. God. So what a good. what a fucking indictment of our culture. And there were a lot of writers who, who did that. Who they did their hour long presentation, science fiction writers, and they they apparently got to have, spend like five minutes kissing the ring of Elon Musk. I don't know. What on, what on earth could he possibly tell you? Like, like I, I'm trying to imagine what could possibly be the value of that, other than you get to like get epic points on Reddit. Well, I mean, because I write about tower tunnels, maybe you tell me about how his special tunnel on the west coast that's gonna (laughs) (laughs) gonna be the salvation of humankind um because apparently he's never seen a a a tunnel with traffic on it before but anyway (laughs) sorry it's terrible i don't mean to just dunk on one person for like hours but no i just dunk on him for a while he represents a whole uh, a whole type of thinking that is extremely problematic. Yeah, well, it's it's yeah. it's you might say he rep- he represents the idea that if you want to differentiate between fast and slow tech, that there are mm. fast tech simple solutions to mm. problems that are uh, you know uh, I don't want to just vexed basically. Yeah, uh, there is basically Elon Musk is like cause I was go- going back to what I was saying earlier about about sci-fi. Is I think a lot of people have their structure ha- are have their st- have their thinking structured on what is possible with technology based on just ambient mm. sci-fi that they consume. Mm. And that Elon Musk represents almost like a, a kind of throwback to the 70s of, you know, whiz-bangs and, and golden age, mm. um, you know, like, like, like um, almost like pulpy uh, uh, visions of, of just, you know, like, like, like things being fixed by gadgets, more or less. And, you know, it, yeah. it seems to me that is this vi- deeply sort of fast tech sort of mm-hmm. way of looking at the world that is structured by this idea that essentially a wizard will do it. Yeah. Which is basi- and, 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 and it's it's the sci-fi version of, oh, I have a whiz bang that, you know, lets yeah. me breathe underwater. You know, a wizard will do it. And, 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 and the sad thing is that unfortunately this applies to what you might call the, the, the hard or fast tech of things like solar farms now, because you're seeing those become much more extractive. You're seeing investors getting involved who don't have any environmental concern whatsoever. So like in Florida, you're seeing like tons of forests raised for solar farms, which again is so ironic. You're seeing endangered gopher tortoises having to be relocated. And so it's, I feel bad about this for, your, for the, the person who doesn't necessarily follow these things that closely because they've got a ton of other things going on in their lives because you should be able to look at the word solar and think, oh, this is a good thing, right? But you can't even do that mm-hmm. under the kind of extractive capitalist system we have right now, you know? Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, <laughs> talking about the, uh, talking about the extract, well, shit, okay, hold on. Maybe we should talk about your new book because I'm realizing we're Why halfway Why would we want to do that? No. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have to. <laughs> Whatever you want to talk about is fine with me. <laughs> but, 
Uh, well then, I mean, if we're if we're on if we're on extractive capitalism, I want I want such a cheery subject. <laughs> yeah. Are we finally going to make our opinions known on extractive capitalism? Yeah, totally. <laughs> Why has this been the subject of the last twenty five podcasts? Is that it? the last hundred podcasts? <laughs> But um, but I want to I want to talk about uh, that in in relation to um, the idea of failure in dead astronauts. So um, I'm, I'm just going to read a quote that really spoke to me from the book, uh, which is they had failed in the last city and the one before that and the one before that. Sometimes failure, sometimes that failure pushed the needle farther. Sometimes that failure changed not a thing. But perhaps one day a certain kind of failure might be enough. And that. That spoke to me not just because of these looming hyper objects like climate catastrophe or political entropy, but also as like a direct attack on capitalism. And I feel like the current capitalist system is this, yeah, giant behemoth that is also incredibly weak. And and to pull it back to Elon Musk, there's there's a culture of fear around the admission of failure, right? Like he's never going to admit that SpaceX doesn't fucking work. Um, so we, you know, like it's a cardinal sin to admit failure. Like we exist in this system. We've jingled the keys in front of our eyes out of necessity and personal admissions of failure seem to threaten the entire structure. And I liked how your book pushed back against that. At least that's how it that's how it felt to me. Yeah, no, it was definitely intentional. I can talk about that a little bit. The uh, the thing the thing that really got me is seeing uh, environmental activists disheartened when they're you know, in Florida, when their efforts were not successful, even though in the long view, you could see how, again, like it said in Dead Astronauts, it, it changed the equation in some way for something in the future. And basically what I realized is they were using the, the standard kind of almost business metric of capitalist society as to whether they had succeeded or not, rather than some other metric. And so that's just how it colonizes you. And, you know, and for me, I saw this personally when I got involved with some of the local Tallahassee politics. And we were all protesting these oaks being cut down to build a stormwater pond. In the process, they destroyed this small African-American community and they, no one seemed to give a shit. Um, and, and, and that looked like a failure because that still went through, right? But after that, in the aftermath of that, two, and two elected officials who had voted for that stuff got kicked out and progressives got put in. And that's having a huge impact on future development in the city and the fact that there's even more visibility for things that various people in the city don't want you to know about and are just trying to sneak through. So, so that, that was a practical example, you know, especially in a biodiverse place like Tallahassee, where it really makes a difference. Uh, you know, we have so much, you know, to save just from a, a, a you know, keeping carbon in, in, in the ground kind of uh, a way that, that, that that really kind of drove it home too. But that was definitely the point I was trying to make in dead astronauts. We need to try to find a different way of talking about this stuff. Um, and thinking about it. Well, I mean, the interesting thing when you talk about failure as well is the question is who gets to fail? Like who mm -hmm. gets to just yeah. keep failing and failing and failing yes. Yes. because their eventual success is yeah. considered inevitable so long yeah. as they keep failing. Well, like Megan McArdle can fail over and over yeah. again. Elon, saying, Elon you know, Musk <laughs> loves blowing up. He, his whole propaganda is I love blowing up rockets because I learn more and can make the next one slightly better. No, that, that's absolutely brilliant, a brilliant way of putting it. Um, and then also because of that, like you're saying that the, 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 the failure has become invisible. So like I pointed out to someone who is celebrating a SpaceX rocket, not to keep going back to this, 
being getting back to the getting actually landing successfully, even though it blew up several seconds later. They're like, well, it landed successfully. And they had like edited out the fact that it just had completely blown up just a few seconds after that. That's how they reported on it, though. That's how that's how. That's how it was reported on in, in like AP. Uh, I remember seeing in my Twitter feed the most dystopian headline, mm. which was SpaceX rocket successfully lands, explodes like seconds <laughs> later. And it's just like, successfully what is what is the fucking metric for success here that the rocket touched the ground? That's a landing. And then and then, then it exploded. There's a total disconnect it's, between. It's a total perversion of the whole careful, slow NASA thing where every once in a while something doesn't go well, but at least you feel like there's more of a process in place that is not so on the edge, right? You know, and, it, yeah. and that there is, and we're always told, oh, well, we, you know, what you said, we learn something scientifically from this. I don't think we're learning anything scientifically the way we did from some of the NASA stuff that didn't go so well with these rocket explosions. <laughs> I'm sorry, it's not yes. the same thing, you know. But the, but the thing is, they see themselves that way. They right. see they're, themselves. They're the cutting edge pioneer, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, it's, exactly. Uh, they uh, whether it's it's that or whether it's there, they see themselves as you know uh, superhuman astronauts uh, right. trying to sort of work through a work through a journal. You know, it's a fundamentalist um, uh, um, point of view in a way. You know what I mean? It's like almost yeah. the same as if you're a fundamentalist Christian and you, your cause is so right that that you know you know it's going to happen. You know, it didn't happen this time. Rapture didn't occur mm. yet, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's a, it's a cultist. It's almost a cultist view. Like, like every failure will be dissected, like, uh, like Romans would have dissected a dead pigeon. Yeah, and you, you know, and and uh, and at the end result will always be, this was good. We are moving forward. I mean, it's it's a way of looking at time as well, where everything that happened was inevitable, and so every mm. failure that led to that point of it happening oh, yeah. was equally unavoidable and, in fact, necessary. That, that's another brilliant point because I used to, when I had a day job, I used to work as a project administrator and sometimes business process analyst for a software company that basically broke down company processes. and 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 what I found is on our own projects, we would, if we if, if everything went well and we made a million dollars or whatever. Everything about that project was immortalized. It didn't matter. Some of the things had gone badly and we should have analyzed and said, we're not going to do that again. It was like, no, the, the entire thing was now the way we, and, and we crash and burn so bad on so many things because we, we basically encoded into our systems the idea that if something went well, that meant every part of it deserved to be carried forward. Uh, and, so, and, and that's another way in which we, we kind of fail ourselves by not like really doing a good post-analysis of what, what happened. Yeah. And so Elon Musk gets to blow up rocket after rocket after rocket, whereas the earlier you were talking about the um, sort of protesting of the mm. um, of the uh, uh, let's say the, the cutting down, like not just the, the like the cutting down of those oaks, but I think you know more importantly as well, like the displacement of that like black community as well. Mm -hmm. And you know the that the price of failure was where those things were lost, and the reward of success was really yeah. only that sort of the progressive counselors got elected, right? Like right. no, it's something's lost forever. Yeah. Yeah, those those these these the what what the 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 price that that must that that someone like Musk or the price that someone like you know Rex Tillerson or whatever or, God there's right. a name from the past right. the price that the wealthy or that capital pays for failure is just that it has to try something new again the price right. that everyone else pays for failure is my community has been displaced and or 
or, or and 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 like the, the the gains that we enjoy are sort of so hard won. But I, I just I just think like like you know like for Musk an exploding rocket is a line item, but for the the, the protesters in Florida the to like the it, what the losses incurred in electing the sort of in electing progressive council people were like material and devastating to actual people. If only be, and that just shows that the stakes are sort of so. And and, and deal and it goes back, I think, to dealing with this hyper object that the stakes are so vastly unevenly split. And even though, um, and even though it did have this effect of at least now we have more transparency and 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 more activism, you know, at a terrible price. Uh, there's also still a contingent where it's like, oh, they're just they're going on about the trees again. You know what I'm saying? In other words, so there's whereas if it's Musk or or the the, the triumphal you know uh, timeline of the future. No one gets sick of the continued, the same old story over and over again. You know, you know what I'm saying? It's got whiz-bang rockets in it. It's, uh... <laughs> but yeah, it's all fascinating. If, if there's hope, I think it's because there are more people are becoming more aware of the, the kind of meta game behind it all. You know what I'm saying? I do think that's happening. I do think that, 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 that new generations are, are more aware of the, the kind of traps that are being set to some degree, maybe. Maybe. Yeah, that's 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 actually something I wanted to get into. Like, how do you as an artist or how do we as artists communicate all this, this feeling to a, you know, maybe a younger generation or people who aren't necessarily as plugged into these networks or aren't um, having their eyes burned out by staring at the hyper object all day? Yeah. And, and I've been thinking yeah. a lot about s- storytelling. Um, you know, so on one hand, you've got direct information dumps like William T. Volman's new books on climate change with uh, no immediate danger, yeah. and no good alternative. I Definitely believe. dumps. So, so they big, big fucking doorstop books. I have both of them, you know, and uh, they're incredible resources. But I feel like stories like Dead Astronauts could be a more direct and, and your other books mm. can be a more direct way of engaging with looming catastrophe and communicating a feeling that leads to hopefully action. Like it's potentially more effective to telegraph the vibe. And I've, I feel that's where sort of whatever you want to call the weird comes in, you know, like Ballard wasn't writing directly about nuclear war, but he got to the emotional core of it. And we're just constantly bombarded by data sets and facts, but sometimes we need a, a story to motivate us to act. Um, and I wanted to know what power do you think this type of storytelling has in the Anthropocene, you know, like in the, in these sort of end, end times. Yeah, well, well, you know, interestingly enough, I think Dead Astronauts is my attempt to do something closer to what I think music does, uh, which is to do something visceral that kind of lives in the body. Uh, you know, obviously music can also be very, I guess you'd call it intellectual. You know I mean? There's all kinds of ways in which music communicates, but, um, but I was thinking, you know, how can I somehow get beyond words? You know, in, in a weird way, I had to use more of them <laughs> in, in more of a prose poetry kind of way, uh, you know, and, and obviously and, and not, you know, I was listening to Wolf Parade and a lot of stuff while I was writing Dead Astronauts that funneled that, that was very important for like uh, the emotional charge of a scene because I was trying to get at what you're talking about. I was trying to get at a, a moment or a vibe. I wasn't trying to get at uh, facts, so to speak. So I think that's one answer is that anything that makes you feel it in your body, 
kind of experience it so much in the moment that you can't escape it. I think that's really important, something really immersive. And that could be across any kind of creative endeavor. Uh, if you get the if you get the the beats and the progressions and the style right, um, I don't know how much my novels actually you know impact the world in that way. I will tell you that after Annihilation, the the the, the common thing I still get is people saying I'm going into environmental science, and part of it is after reading The Biologist and Annihilation, which is a huge huge compliment. Uh, but I don't know if it's more that I get to talk about environmental issues because the book was successful or the books themselves. It's this weird conundrum where you can't really tell uh, which it is. All you know is that at least you, you, you feel like you are able to, to um, have some kind of platform to, to speak about these things. I have a, I have a similar thing with, um, with the way I approach politics in, in music, and it's, mm-hmm. it's been like a you know, 20-year process. But when I started writing music, I was making punk music. I was, mm-hmm. I was in the crust punk scene. So you would write songs that were extremely direct about, you know, you were naming, you were naming names. Yeah. And I don't think those are totally effective. And in, in, the, in, in the last decade, I've, I've really tried to be able to pull out what it is I'm trying to say and then telegraph that emotionally mm-hmm. without being as on the nose as, say, like a Fugazi song or something. And, yeah, and like I mean... you said, it, it gives you a platform, but then... You know, I don't know. If someone listens to Radiant Dawn and decides to join the Communist Party of Canada, I don't know, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. Like, that's a win well, I mean, for me. Yeah, and I mean, I say that, and yet the new novel, Hummingbird Salamander, is very direct, but it, I think it's because I found a way, I just happened upon a mystery that this character comes upon that is so embedded with the environmental stuff that things that would be didactic, uh, in a novel normally are just are part of the plot, right? They're part of what she has to kind of uncover. And so hopefully that, that changes the way the information is seen by, by someone, but, but it's probably the most, the only, the the most direct novel I'll I'll ever write about the subject, just because I happened upon this, this thing uh, that seemed to work. Uh, Most of the time I am like, I'm trying to find that different angle to kind of slide in there and, and, and say something. I just do podcasts and that's not art. So <laughs> it's not. <laughs> that's not true. That is absolutely. If you ever listen to a bad podcast, you know. That it's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a very good point. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, the reason. Okay, one of the reasons I think that number one, um, um, podcasts are not necessarily comparable to that, other than the myriad of obvious reasons that everyone is probably saying to their phone right now, is that the, is that the medium, or at least the medium, sort of as I I do it is I think you know quite directly didactic um, and what I was kind of wondering about what you guys were talking about that is okay well we're talking about how the left uses these these kinds of uh, art to make you feel these things in your body that suddenly these conclusions about you know, justice or distribution or economic even fucking uh, yeah the planning of society whatever seem obvious and exciting and I'm sort of wondering well ever but it's not it, like wondering who else does that elsewhere in the political spectrum. And what I was thinking of was um, how fucking the, the Mumford and Sons guy came out in support of Andy Ngo, um recently. Yeah. And it was like, well, yeah, you can, when you think about like, like how that song, you know, home is wherever I'm with you makes you, it would try to make you feel when you think about sort of his background as the son of a fucking hedge fund manager. When you think about sort of what, how art can sort of motivate in that other direction, say that um, 
in Britain, the endless debate, or at least was for a couple of years, was between a bunch of like, you know, conservative pseudo intellectuals who love to say, oh, the, the sort of this reactionary quasi fascist turn in British politics is about returning to a sense of place for, you know, neglected working class communities or whatever. And it's all bullshit. But you can sort of see the ideological work being done to kind of give people to give people a sense of you know, caring about those other things um, when you're, let's say, um, uh, political uh, motivation might be, um, you know, uh, towards a different direction. And so it, what it sort of spells out to me is just how if, how crucially effective it is to be non-didactic and how I must just clearly be fucking wasting my time because the only the only thing I do other than just, I don't know, like, enjoy fine wine or whatever is a uh, highly didactic podcast <laughs> <laughs> very literal it's a it's an interesting question i mean i i recently did some 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 research on like targeted political ads uh like locally and stuff and it's quite fascinating how given the right approach somebody who's nominally kind of like on the right will respond to an environmental issue if it's if it's phrased the right way the question is the question is, though, if you phrase it so much of a certain way, do you distort it so much that it it, it doesn't become it, it becomes something else other than what it was? Um, to, like, uh, is is it that okay? Like eco fascism. <laughs> it becomes like they voted the right, right. <laughs> they voted the right way, but they they're an eco fascist now. <laughs> yeah, Oops, it, it becomes like a it becomes a tweet from a guy who's got a who lives in Norway and has a folk folk quote unquote folk band. You know? Right, like my nightmare is one day I'm I'm like uh, save the trees, and the guy next to me I'm looking at him, and he's got all kinds of symbology on him that I'm not really fond of. You know, so no, it's a yeah. Hindu. You're symbol. at you're at a person concert all of a sudden, or someone comes up, they want a novel sign, they're like, this really made me, you know, think about blah blah blah. And I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> No, no, yeah. the John Birch Society because they like trees. <laughs> but you know, the fact of it is, is that anything, any subject can become a right wing subject, right? So, I mean, my my feeling on like eco fascism is that most of the time we just need to make sure we 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 claim those subjects in a useful way, so they don't become subvert, you know, become very popular <laughs> in a way that yeah. is terrible. Um, even as you know, you will be at these environmental meetings, and there will be somebody who clearly does not know that there were people in North America before settler, you know, I mean, that kind of thing. And, and, mm -hmm. and they're sympathetic to the same thing, but, but it, it, it's like, which is why I, th I think it's so important that, that the environmental movement is not, is less and less white uh, as yeah. we go along, yeah. because otherwise really very disturbing things can happen. You know, I'm, th I'm thinking specifically of a, of a time in my life when, when, in Couch and Lake, I went to a, a protest, uh, basically protesting the logging of the Carmina Valley mm -hmm. and was at this protest with a bizarre mix of like hippie dead enders, anarchists, and then just people from my town that I grew up with whose political views are, you know, on indigenous cultures are repellent to me, you know, mm -hmm. but yeah. we're but we're holding the line with us as well because of their material interests. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah. I think about that all the time when I think about ecofascism. Yeah, it's um, yeah, and and and, and even in um, you know the contradictions in the latest novel are you know you have somebody who's an eco activist, but you know Sylvina, this dead woman, she's she's come from a very rich billionaire background, and you know part of what the novel is saying in the background is 
can she ever escape that background to actually become effective as an activist, right? Like there's certain things that come with that, you know, that, that maybe so, you can't always escape in terms of how you think of solutions and, and whatnot, you know? So what you're saying is your new book is going to make me feel sympathy for the daughter of a billionaire. Well, I mean, you know, it's strange, it's strange daughter of a billionaire. I'm not saying sympathy. I mean, I think it's very, I, I, I'm proud of the book because I think you'll have complicated feelings about all of the characters. Except for the character named Hellmouth, who maybe by the name Hellmouth will already Hellmouth? tell you. <laughs> well, that's what she calls him because uh, the main character, because she she he won't tell her uh, his name, so she 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 just calls him Hellmouth for for reasons that become pretty clear. But uh, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think that that's an interesting area to kind of like get into because it's it's important too in terms of like you need to untangle this stuff to get to the right solution. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Okay, we are we are approaching time. Okay, <laughs> it doesn't. I have to say, I said I'm pleasantly happy with the fact that it didn't feel like that much time to me. So I, I really appreciate no. that. It, it skipped by <laughs> to me as well. Means we're doing our job. <laughs> right. <laughs> but I so so we covered we covered a lot of ground here. Um, much of it, gotta say, fairly depressing. Um, <laughs> but and yeah, um, laughing for some reason, yeah. Yeah, I mean we're all we're all we all love to laugh here on the pale blue dot. Yeah, that's right. We all have mugs saying you don't have to be crazy to live on this planet, but it helps because we're all off because we're all lame office people. (laughs) But I I want to close us up by asking uh, everyone a question, Um, and it's something I've I've been thinking about a lot getting ready getting ready to record this. So the question is: in a world where we're dwarfed by these hyper objects climate catastrophe the calcification of our political systems in a world that seems to be simultaneously frozen in time and hurtling towards some terrible end i want to ask you guys what is your vision of hope and how can you telegraph that with what you do uh with your art and and what hope looks like to you in that context so for me personally it's being part of some of these new broader organic networks of what I would call solidarity. And I don't necessarily just mean online um, because I think that is a bizarre way of diffusing political energy. Mm. But I think the power of the left has been kind of utterly smashed and we have to rebuild these organic networks and nervous systems from scratch and, and build them in a way that hasn't been done before. So I see kids getting into socialism, Marxism, the building blocks of this. And it's like they are living in a dying earth, both literally and in the Jack Vance sense of the word, where these texts are completely decontextualized from their own material reality. They're rediscovering these ideas, but there are very few examples to follow. And for me, this is hope. Like if I can communicate with this, these new networks, be part of them or tell a compelling story about building them with my music, then I feel hopeful. You know, that's that's my that's my version of hope. But but what about you guys? Well, to add on to that, because I think that 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 would be maybe part of my answer. But for for me, in the last couple of years, it's really been about more focus on the local. And I feel actually kind of bad that I have not been focused on the local. But there's something about having a career as an author where you're you're kind of focused on your readers and in a way where you might be highlighting like a national environmental issue or something. And and I think I lost sight of what's happening locally. And, and 
the last couple of years, I've gotten much more involved in local politics, uh, local environmental efforts. I've, I've put myself, I think also because it's weird. It's like I'm used to like appearing in front of an audience, but putting myself out there in a, in a other kind of public way is actually kind of um, unfamiliar, right? So it's uncomfortable. So I've had to push past that. Um, and and in addition to that, like like doing things to to hopefully materially hold on to what we have here in North Florida and also have that intersection of social justice. But then also in the moment, this rewilding of the yard has been extremely important because animals have a different sense of time than we do. So you know, if, if I can do something that, that helps the birds and animals in the yard for like five years even before climate change really sweeps over us, you know, that's a couple generations for some of these, these, these animals. So I, I guess my, it's not really advice, it's just that what's worked for me is find something that totally immerses you in the moment in your local environment if you can you know and it, it can be you know volunteering to help with a public space where they're trying to plant wildflowers it doesn't have to be on property you own it doesn't have to be something that costs money uh, but involve yourself in some way so that you don't get frozen because that's the other thing is if you if you're not living in the moment part of the time i think you can get really frozen on these issues because as you say they're huge uh and it's hard to know where to start uh but i think if you start from something small then you can grow that to something it's really, really big. I think that's I think that's really, really good advice on all levels. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll, I'll do a I'll do a quick a quick one one here, which is I almost approach it from the opposite direction, which is I tend to think, well, you your your lying eyes do not deceive you. You know, the your your life is not as good as it could be, even though by some objective measure it might be better than it might have been at some pr- point in the past. And the question is, and and your life at that point in the past was probably closer to as good as it could have been, depending on where you are and who you were, and so on and so on. Mm-hmm. And my question is always, how, for hope is, is comes from that gap, right? The basis of criticism is that things are not as good as they could be. If things couldn't be better, you would have no basis for criticism. And so, if you find yourself roundly criticizing things all the fucking time. It's because they could be better, and there's a way to make them better. And just because it's hard doesn't mean well, it doesn't mean shit, really. The fact of the matter is, there are it need that that the world. What is it that um the world needn't be like it is, but it is something we make, and it could be made better. And that potential for me is kind of what keeps me getting out of bed. So I I think that's that's it for this this episode of Bottleman. I think Jeff, uh, you have helped us sort of at least delineate the the uh, edges of, of some of these hyper objects and come up with some solutions for dealing with living in the shadow of them well um, yeah <laughs> it's a lot to ask from a from an hour or so of a podcast to solve yeah. all the world's problems through hyper objects this is true this is true this is, this is what we're trying to do here at bottleman so um do, uh, big so solutions I'm, quick yeah, right. Big solutions yeah, quick. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um so your book is coming out April sixth, right? Yes, Hummingbird Salamander yes. is is there anything else you would uh you you would like to plug while we have you here? Yeah, just that this amazing thing happened where I, I gave a short story of mine, Secret Life to a uh comic book uh uh illustrator, Theo Ellsworth, and said, Hey, what do you think of this? And uh about three weeks later, he sent me back an entire manuscript. He'd storyboarded in his head, and then he'd just done the whole thing uh, in one go, and it was perfect. Uh, and that's coming out from John and Quarterly in September. 
Uh, and it's got some environmental themes and it's set in an office building that's overtaken by this huge plant. Uh, and, and I think it's amazing in part because I didn't have to put any effort into it whatsoever. So. I will be buying that from Tron and Quarterly, which is literally three blocks oh away God, from me. Oh my God, I envy you so much. <laughs> Yeah, they're right down the street. I'll send you, you want me to pick you some stuff up, I'll, yeah, uh, I'll send it to you. I'll put it in the post. Do you, do you want me to get you a copy of your own book? I kind of have that kind of pull. Sure, sure. You're making all these offers that I feel like are extravagant. That's the kind of care and treatment you get on Bottleman's, right? Well, thanks. So that's it for us. Um, Jeff, thank you very much for coming on. Um, you can find us on patreon.com where you can subscribe and get bonus episodes like this one. That's right. Uh,